Thank you so much for joining Really Specific Stories. John, it's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I think. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how we go. Maybe you'll be thankful, maybe not at the end. Yeah, ask me at the end. <laughs> That's a good idea. First question, as is the case with every guest, is how did you first get into podcasts? Uh, well, I, I, I don't remember the year exactly. You probably have looked it up and know. When I started the first uh, version of the talk show with Dan Benjamin, it was uh, Dan's idea. And he, I guess, it was very early, I don't, I don't know, I'm going to guess 2006. Uh, am I correct? Do you know? Am I, is that right? It sounds right, but uh, <laughs> All right. I deliberately do less research than what you think. It was Dan's idea. He was very, very, I, I will have to give him f- uh, full credit for very early in when, when the word podcast was even a niche term, but just what, you know, it existed. It wasn't called internet radio anymore. Uh, it was called podcasting. People in our tech circle people who read Daring Fireball, people who read Dan's HiveLogic web blog at the time, were the sort of people who used their iPods to do this. You know, there was, it, it all seems convoluted, but it seemed so convenient at the time because nothing happened over the air. Our iPods, uh, none of those original iPods had networking at all. So everything you did was hooking up USB to a computer or Firewire if it was an old enough iPod, which really, really dates this whole conversation, you would download your favorite podcasts to your computer, and then you would sync them over to your iPod, and then you would have these shows that were actually of interest to you, unlike what's on terrestrial FM radio. And he was very keen on the idea that we should do one talking about the sort of stuff we write about, nerdy, Apple, Mac I mean, it was all pre-iPhone. So when you talked about Apple at the time, it was mostly about the Mac. And it was popular-ish. We went through fits and starts over a few years. I mean, the first run of the show was maybe 20 episodes. I forget how close to weekly it was. And I don't think we ever once had a sponsor. You know, and my website, for people who are out there listening, I don't know who's listening to this, but my website, Daring Fireball, I've turned into a professional full-time writing job almost entirely through weekly sponsorships, advertising. Uh, I had a membership system around that same time, 2006, you know, way before the current trend of Substacks and, and other subscription-driven publications. But sponsorships have worked out very well for me on the web. But at that time, it was all that was even new. And it... I don't even know that there was anybody who was thinking about paying to sponsor podcasts. So it kind of petered out on that front. I mean, it's it seems a little gauche to say that the only reason we were doing it was money. It wasn't. I mean, it was, you know, and, and our most people who were blogging in that decade weren't doing it for money either. Almost nobody was. But it, you know, just sort of petered out. And then we tried it again, and we did have sponsors. Uh, I forget when it started up again. And then it just sort of took off from there, maybe 2008, 2009 or so. I think. I don't know. I'm not good with years. (laughs) That's fine. I'm after that general flow of the story and how you remember it. So what I really like and what you said there was that you were listening to what you wanted, or there were interests that were for you beyond 
what was offered from terrestrial radio. What was your impression of the medium at this time when you were experimenting with it and listening to shows for the first time? How did you feel about this audio on demand? I guess one of the things that struck me right away was that uh, much like the web itself, you could do it with what I thought were of extremely high production values for a totally reasonable layperson's budget and without any sort of real technical acumen. I mean, it was basically, I forget what the go-to mic at the time was, might have been the Blue Yeti. It was just a USB microphone. I think Amazon carried it for somewhere between 100 150 US dollars or you know, somewhere in that. And you did that was it. You just needed your computer, a little bit of software, you know. So for a grand budget of I don't know, $150 in hardware and software, you could make a show that sounded really really good when you listen on an iPod which was very different from even just a handful of years ago. I mean, one thing about that whole decade that it's, if you were trying to do a podcast at the time, I mean, the big problem was where do we, where do you put the files? Because even with MP3 compression and we compressed, I'm sure we did uh, compress those original shows far more than most shows would compress today, but they still sounded really good. I mean, for spoken audio, you can get away with pretty high compression. And most people's ears won't tell. But even then, if it was, I don't know, 50 megabytes per file, putting it somewhere, I mean, most of the time, like, uh, wherever you hosted your website at, at the time was all metered. And a reasonable amount of popularity, and you'd start bumping up against, you know, if you had a $15 a month web hosting plan, uh, if you put a 50 megabyte MP3 podcast file there and had even just a few thousand listeners, you'd you'd run over that limit very quickly. Things like AWS weren't, I don't think were around at the time, or if it was, it was so new. It, you know, it, it was all just a big question. Where can you put these 50 megabyte files so that thousands of people can download them? Video was a thousand times worse because video's, I don't know, a hundred times bigger than audio. And that's the whole problem YouTube originally solved for video. But this was all getting worked out. So I remember that being a big problem. But, you know, we figured it out somehow and it felt, you know, it was just cool. It's like, hey, this show actually sounds pretty good. We sound like we know what we're doing. And I think the same thing was true of the weblogs at the time and still, still now that you if you were really a smart reader and you really had any kind of expertise in a field, you could find far more interesting, better written, better presented visually things on people's personal weblogs than you could on professional corporate media websites at the time, which, and it's still true to this point where they use ad tech or ad layouts that pop up over the text. So, you know, that's always been of interest to me in my career is doing it independently, but doing it with not just, hey, that's pretty good for an independent one person effort. It's I, I would like it to be better than what people expect from a bigger corporate publication, if that makes sense. And I thought right away, I thought it was pretty clear that podcasts could do that. So you were committed to high quality from the beginning. Right. And this word independent, it's really interesting you've brought it up so early because this is a kind of common theme in this 
tech podcasting community. How did it feel to be working independently, moving into podcasting? Did you feel a kind of shift in identity? What did it mean to assume this role or new persona? Well, I, I've always had that independent streak and it, it always felt, it still does to this point in 2023. It still feels like a sidecar to my main motorcycle, which is writing my uh, website. And like I often say, like from my accountant's perspective, when I do my taxes every year, it ebbs and flows the last few years. My income from my website and my income from podcasting, which ones, you know, but it's pretty close to 50-50 averaged over the last few years. But there a couple of the years, the podcast sponsorship revenue was a little over 50%. So from my accountant's perspective, I'm a writer slash podcaster. In my mind, though, I'm a writer who podcasts on the side, and I'll never be anything but. And even if the sponsorship revenue went more 60 40 or two-thirds one-third in favor of podcast sponsorship revenue in my mind i'd still think i still think of myself as a writer who podcasts on this side it's who i am it's what i feel i'm better at it's what i enjoy doing more but it felt like a natural way to keep growing what i had started doing a few years earlier at daring fireball like rather than write somewhere else or start a second web blog with a second domain of interest. It felt like going from having a website where I write about certain topics to adding a podcast where I talk about the same topics. And, you know, clearly, I mean, you know this from, from following my site and the podcast. They, you know, the slogan for my podcast now is the director's commentary for my website, which is still how I think about it, where it's a way for me to sort of talk about what I've been writing about. And it felt it's always felt very natural in that way. It's interesting that you've brought up that you've always had that independent streak and that writing is the main part of what you do or the main part of your identity. Reaching back, how did or where did your passion for writing really start? What's your early memory of that? It's a good question, and I've thought about it a lot, because a lot of people, and in hindsight, it seems a little surprising to me that I can't say this. It seems like a lot of people who devote themselves, their careers to writing, can say that they knew it from an early age. And I don't, although I don't know that I ever thought, it wasn't, it wasn't like outside my imagination of things I might want to do, but I never, I didn't latch onto it young. And I didn't certainly didn't. I, I went to college and majored in computer science, and thought, I guess, going into college, that the most likely thing I'd come out doing professionally would be programming of some sort. But as a teenager, you know, I certainly I did get more into reading. I mean, and that's I've never met. There's no writer I I've ever enjoyed who has written about the act of writing, whose first advice isn't to read as much as you can, you know, it just gets repeated over and over and over again. And all of the, how to become a writer or how to improve your writing literature, you know, so I guess it started as a teenager when I became more of a voracious reader, but I wonder too, how that would work out doing it all over again. Because when I was a teenager, 
there was no internet. I didn't have a computer at home. My parents, I've told this story before, but a lot of my friends couldn't get a computer at home because their parents would look at the price of, you know, like a $2,000 Apple 2GS system or a more expensive Macintosh system in the 80s and say, that I'm, we're not going to spend all that money. You're just, you're not going to use it enough. My parents were like, we're not going to buy you a computer because if we buy you a computer, you're never going to leave the house. <laughs> and I... <laughs> I think they. I do think they. Were, I was very frustrated by that. Uh, I suppose if I were more industrious, I would have somehow committed myself to getting a job so I could have bought myself a computer. But I, I had the insatiable, passionate desire to own my own computer. But I did not. Uh, did not have the industrious streak to go work enough to actually buy it on my own. And so left, you know, in my own room with my own time, really all I, you know, had to do, I could listen to music and I could read. And so I read a lot. Really, it was college, I guess, where I became, it was like, oh, this is what I want to do. Where I got involved with the student newspaper at Drexel University and year after year worked my way up the ladder to become the editor in chief and learned graphic design and, and all of the stuff that went into making the newspaper and uh, it didn't take very long before I got there, before I realized that, okay, I'll finish my degree. And, you know, Drexel doesn't have a journalism program. I don't know. It might have been too late to switch anyway. But I didn't really want to study journalism. I just, you know. But writing for the student newspaper, designing it, the thrill of seeing my stuff in print. At some point in college, I realized that's really the only thing I wanted to do long term. I'm interested to delve into your writing further. But before that, I'd like to know a bit more about your reading, given how much emphasis you give on it in terms of fueling writing and writing passion and skill. What sorts of thing did you enjoy reading back in those teen years or when you were at college? In teen years, I read fiction voraciously. I read like at one point, I think I was completely caught up on the works of Stephen King, you know, which even in the late 80s was a mountain of books. Uh, Isaac Asimov, classic science fiction. Those are two, two who really stick out. But anybody, you know, that whole section of the bookstore with <laughs> science fiction and horror and and. Uh, pulpy fiction like that. But, you know, uh, Stephen King and Isaac Asimov are, you know, and uh, almost it's King in particular, I think, even though his, he's a genre writer in terms of subject matter, he's just a terrific, terrific wordsmith. He really, really is. And of course, famously prolific. So that if you are, you know, you're lucky if you're a fan of, of him because he can, you know, keeps writing multi hundred page books. Uh, so lots of lots of science fiction type stuff, novels, short story collections. I always I always had a soft spot for short story collections too, because I, I always, and you know maybe a sort of early hint that my particular bent as a writer would be towards short form writing. You know I've never even attempted to write a book, uh, article length writing just seems very natural to me, you know, the way that, uh, you know, for some track and field athletes there, it's very obvious that they're a sprinter and not a marathoner, you know, never say never. That's what people ask me if I've ever thought about writing a book. I mean, I'd never say no, but I've never really like teetered on the brink and thought, Ooh, this is a good idea. Maybe I should outline, you know, it's, it's never gotten close either. Uh, but that, that changed a lot. I, I don't, uh, I don't know 
college, I guess. I guess I, my fiction reading dropped off significantly in college and sort of changed a lot more towards periodicals, you know, magazines, article-length type things. I'm a voracious reader of the newspaper my whole life, or until print newspapers ceased being much of a, a relevant thing. And, you know, uh, my years in college, you know, 1991 to 96 coincided with the rise of the internet and obvious source of reading there. I think it's easy when people hear that people are interested in computers, that they like science fiction, that's a bit of an easy thing to dismiss. Oh, well, of course. But burrowing into those themes a bit, that's formative stuff. Stephen King, Isaac Asimov, as you said, what was it about science fiction and the themes in science fiction that really gelled with you or that informed the way that you thought about technology or even went into writing? I don't know. Uh, I guess maybe it's true for even very realistic contemporary setting fiction too, that this is how good writers come up with a plot. But, you know, the question, what if, or, or the starting phrase, what if, is so infinitely rich, right? It's it's sort of, to me, a defining characteristic of imagination, you know, and that this is where, whether it's a solo project or whether it's a collaborative effort with a team, what if is how ideas get built out. And that sort of genre fiction is filled with more what ifs because it's not just the character backgrounds like oh you know like a uh, what if the main character is a school teacher and uh, they're recently divorced or the uh, it's a woman whose husband just tragically died you come up with what ifs for all of the cast of characters but then it's what if it's a hundred years in the future and such and such has been invented by that time? You know, you just keep, it, it, it seemed to me more engaging at every level of the story to have every aspect of it, the plot, the characters, the setting be more, less grounded in, in the world around me. That's a great point you have there about what if, and it reminds me of my own story of technology becoming interested in the Mac which then led through to tech podcasting and now speaking to someone like you. When you think of the what-ifs of your own life, can you tell me about that initial fandom with technology, that what-if that computer didn't come home with your family? What was the story of getting into technology at that time? Well, and I should add, you know, that we weren't like a Luddite family. And, and we had, you know, at very early, you know, in the late 70s, we got the Atari 2600 video game system, you know, and my and my mom in particular uh, enjoyed playing a bunch of the games, too. So I cannot remember not being instantly fascinated and gravitating towards computers. My mom's brother, my uncle was into technology and had... I don't even know what it was called, but it was like a pre-Atari 2600 home video game system. I don't, I, it might have only played Pong, or it might, I, forget, I, I don't even think it had cartridges. But it was, I remember being at his house and being uh, very, very young. I mean, I don't know, three or four, but you could hold the thing in your hand and make the thing on TV move. You know, it's like TV itself was fascinating, of course, and, you know, is a famous source of 
<laughs> children being captivated for hours at a time. But to actually have like a rectangle on the screen that you could make move up and down, you know, instantly seemed fun, but instantly made me wonder how, how is this possible? How, how is, how does this possibly work? Uh, I don't even know how to start with how captivated I was by computers at every step of the way, you know, from childhood to adulthood. It just, it, they just constantly seemed utterly fascinating and utterly just machines to make the sort of things I imagined possible, you know, in a way that just opened up ideas for creativity, whether it was writing, you know, like it seemed very clear to me early on and it was frustrating, you know, growing up, you know, I had like a, a in high school, a, a word processor, which was a sort of a glorified typewriter with like maybe 30 characters at a time on the LCD. So, you you know, if you misspelled a word and caught it immediately, you could backspace. It would like print the line. It was like like a one line at a time text editor and you'd hit return and then that line would print on a paper. It's a roundabout way of answering your question, but flash forward to like my high school years where I would write, have to write papers this way. But I knew because I'd used computers at school that I could be using a proper word processor on a computer where if I thought about changing the paragraph order or thought of a paragraph to insert earlier, that instead of having to retype the whole goddamn thing or, you know, some kind of ugly scotch tape literal cut literally cut and paste job i mean people forget i'm sure kids today really really don't think about the fact that cut copy and paste in our computer lingo was was not like an analogy it was literally what what you did for editing before you literally would take scissors to it and if you wanted to reorder the paragraphs of something you wrote and cut them apart and paste them back on a piece of paper um the potential of a computer was always so obvious to me. And wherever the current state of personal computing was, however crude by our current standards, the computers of you pick a year from my youth, uh, you know, 1987, 1993, the, even the late you know 90s, I could always see Oh, but imagine in a couple of years from now when everything's faster and there's more storage and networking is faster, what we'll be able to do then. I've always been able to see to some degree ahead the the potential of a couple of more years of the sort of progress that we've just seen. And let's move to that growth or that potential, I suppose, as you've put it, as the internet was coming up and you were exploring this new world of potential of possibilities what was it like to kind of find your voice in writing after you had moved on from your time at college again i it's hard for me to justify or explain why it took i graduated college in june of 1996 and i started writing daring fireball in august 2002 why did it take that long I mean, 1990, immediately after college, the word web blog wasn't a word, let alone the shortened blog. But somewhere in between there and when I started, you know, it did become a thing. And I was reading Dave Weiner, who's, you know, he writes all over the web, but his home has always been at scripting.com. Certainly one of the first 
bloggers, certainly one of the longest running, but also some of the earlier ones, if you want to get in an argument over who was first, a lot of the earlier ones, I forget his name. I think his name is Jorg. Uh, Robot Wisdom was his weblog, but it was more like a list of links. It was just sort of like headlines and articles he'd seen throughout the day, and he would just update it. And it had the right form where the new stuff went at the top and the old stuff got pushed down. But Dave Weiner was a writer, or it still is. And in addition to, hey, here's like three things I saw elsewhere, and here I'll put links to them and you can go read them. He'd just write entire columns with his thoughts on something. And the appeal of that was huge. But I guess the thing, one thing I figured out was that I never really stopped writing in between being in college and writing for the the newspaper and starting Daring Fireball because I was so active on Usenet news groups and mailing lists at the time, which were sort of very, very similar in, in form, just different delivery methods and writing about this sort of stuff, you know, Apple type stuff. Uh, there's a publication, you know, by far, almost certainly one of the longest, by definition, one of the longest running publications possible on the internet, Tidbits, which started in the early 90s as a hypercard stack that would be distributed over Usenet. And you, you, <laughs> I mean, it was actually really innovative and it made it much richer than just about anything else that you could do at the time. And then every week you would just download a new copy of their hypercard stack, which would you know, in addition to having all the previous issues would have like the new issue, but they had like a mailing list for the readers and it was super, super high, uh, high quality. It wasn't like edited or moderated, but there was just an expectation that it, it, it effectively came across as moderated because the overall quality of the discourse was so high. You know, it was assumed that you were going to proofread your work and be thoughtful. And, you know, I, I, was very active there, all sorts of other places. Um, you know, at some point I thought, you know, and I saw uh, Kotke and, and other people who started their blogs ahead of me. And I, I thought I could do that. You know, I knew that I could do it. I just, I have a very, very, very strong procrastination streak, which I guess is ultimately I, I, the short way of just saying, why did it take me and so long. I mean, from some people's perspective, you could say I've at this point, I've been blogging so long, so consistently. Wow. But in my mind, I still feel like I got started later than I should. And I can't really explain it. But it's like when the time was right, I was like, okay, now I'm ready to go. And as you got into these forums and groups and were discovering these people, this sounds like the foundation or the building blocks for what was to come or the, or the people that we know connected to you now. What was it like to be entering or learning about this community online, this broader tech or maybe Apple-centric community? I think it's probably true for any field, but it was, I remember it was, it was a bit of a thrill to go from being a voracious reader of the print periodicals of Macworld and Mac user being the two big ones here in the US for the Apple nerd community. And to, you know, go from recognizing people's bylines from those magazines to being on mailing lists uh, or news groups where they're participating and having like a back and forth with them. At first, it's a thrill. It's like, wow, I'm talking with, you know, so-and-so who I, you know, 
on the staff at Mac user and then quickly becomes more like, huh, it's a small world, you know. But I, I will say, I guess the other thing, I think I sort of left this hanging on your last question, but it's related, is the other thing about me and my personality is to say it had it was unappealing is the opposite or, or not strong enough. It's like the one thing I had just had no desire to do is sort of work my way up any kind of ladder, you know, and it's good at the time I did internships here in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Inquirer, a big daily newspaper, which is still around, thankfully, but you know, it's a shell of its former self. But at the time in the nineties was uh, enormously profitable, enormously successful journalistically. There was a stretch over the late 80s. There's some kind of maybe like a 10-year stretch where the Philadelphia Inquirer won more Pulitzer Prizes than any newspaper in the United States. It was up there as like a just one tier below like the New York Times and the Washington Post. And I worked there, but not in the newsroom. I worked in the promotions department, which is sort of like their in-house ad agency, doing graphic design work, not writing. Because that was just something else I learned in college, and I had a keen interest in design. But the thing I had no interest in is like becoming you know, somebody who's, I don't know, reporting on city hall meetings and then working my way up for years to get the columnist job where I get to write the sort of things I want to write later. I just wanted to do it myself. <laughs> you know, and I just did, I'm not good. I've never been good. I've never held a job where I answered to somebody for very long in my entire life. And so the desire to carve out my own thing, working by myself, I just was very self-aware of that at, at an early age. And it just seemed clear that, that that was the path for me, you know, the becoming a staff writer at Macworld or something like that and waiting until I could get the back page column. It, it never really was something I comp contemplated. And I could just see it. I could see, you know, my weird mix circa the early, very early 2000s when I started Daring Fireball, having a computer science background, doing freelance, you know, creating websites. I knew how to create web. I mean, it was what I kind of did. I didn't really have a full-time job doing it, but just took freelance project jobs, building websites for small companies. So wanting to write, having the de desire to self-publish, and then having the technical acumen to know how to make that happen circa 2001, 2002, it just felt like all of the planets were aligned, like, clearly, this is what I, I, I should do right now. And when you took that plunge and started to write and work for yourself and develop this following online, what was it like to start receiving reactions from people from the broader community? How did it feel to be building that following in the early days? I guess a little bit of a thrill, but more of a relief just because I, I've always felt this way about sports too, where I I love to play sports. I used to. Now that I'm older, I I play less, but I like to observe them. But I I take losing harder than I enjoy winning, which which you would think might drive someone to well, if that's how you feel, if you if you derive more displeasure from losing than you get pleasure from winning, then why compete at all? You know. But yet you're, I still feel driven to watch and participate in sports. And in the same way, whatever satisfaction I got 
early on or still get now when somebody says they, you know, find out somebody's a regular reader or somebody says they're a big fan is gratifying, but it's smaller in my emotional self than my fear that people won't be interested or will lose interest or that I uh, won't have an I mean, in the early days that I wouldn't get an audience at all. Now, you know, that I, I'm not writing things that will keep the audience that I have engaged or, you know, hopefully still keep growing it and keep gaining new, younger readers. But I'm driven more by that than by any kind of patting myself on the back for any sort of acclaim or, or praise for, for what I do. That motivation is really interesting to know. So sustaining interest. So as you developed the site, Daring Fireball, and you started to grow your podcasting presence, what was it that you think enabled you to sustain people's interest? How did you start to think about your writing and your recording and how you would attract and keep your subscribers? Well, the writing part is I, I can answer better. And I know that this show is supposed to be more about podcasting. But like I said, in my self-identification, I'm a writer who podcasts on the side. And I, under, I, I feel like I understand it better. And uh, my answer to the writing part has always been very, very simple. I, I write for a hypothetical version of me who's out there, an exact clone of me who just isn't the one who's writing this stuff. And... From the beginning until today, I'm as certain as I could be that if there were, if there's somebody else out there who's exactly like me, that their favorite website is mine and their favorite writer is me. And that if I keep that up, if I could keep, if I keep writing what I myself would enjoy reading, that there must be some number of people out there, you know, who also will. And so far that's been true. Obviously, the subject matter that I choose to write about is, to some degree, a niche. I mean, some of it is obvious luck, you know, that I started a website mostly focused on Apple in 2002, and the success that that company has had and their rise and just the number of people who are interested in them in the years that I've been writing, uh, very, very fortunate. But... It's not entirely luck. It's not like I picked their name out of a hat. It it's also the fact that I could see that this was a company worth writing about, you know, that to some degree predicted their success. But you know, I guess where I'm going with this though is that it's never it's always been clear to me that if I'm you know, what I write about at Daring Fireball is never going to make me Stephen King, right? It's not going to make me a uh, household name for for the mass market because they're just not they're not not even going to understand some of the stuff I write. And that's just never been what motivated me, you know. I, I mean, I'm very very glad. So I've I've never been motivated by trying to write whatever it would be to have the biggest audience possible or the most popular weblog period or to make the most money from self-publishing on the internet. None of that is ever ever vaguely motivated me it's you know i would like to write this stuff i would just like to write the stuff that i would like to read even though i know that what i like to read isn't what has mainstream appeal and the fear is just is that too small to sustain you know a career because it was it, it, the early years of it where i i wasn't making any money at all and then the next couple of years where i was making some money but nowhere near enough to support a family 
that fear still feels fresh in my mind that what if this never actually becomes something that I can just say, this is all that I do. And as you moved more into podcasting, did that bring more of a feeling of security or more fear? How did that change what you do, what you create? That's a good follow-up question I would have covered if I, <laughs> if I could keep more, more of your question in my head at a time. Uh, no, and where I'm going with that is I don't have a sense of that with podcasts. And part of it, too, is I, I'm not a voracious podcast listener because I just don't have time. I don't have, I've, I've carved out this life for myself where I don't have a commute. Uh, you know, my commute is coming downstairs to the kitchen and making coffee and then going down one more flight of stairs to my office to work. I do listen to podcasts. I live here right in center city, Philadelphia, and and drive very little. Most of my you know, errands I run are on foot. And so I listen to podcasts while I'm out and about running errands or just taking a walk in the city on a nice day. But overall, I listen to very, very few podcasts. And so it's completely against I, I would and I, I also think I don't think I'm very good at podcasting. I mean I realize I have an audience and that there's many, you know, I'm grateful for it and it, it is a like I said, a roughly fifty percent of my income. But I, I don't have that sense. I'm not quite sure. So for example, I don't know that my podcast would be my favorite podcast if I weren't the one listening. I don't know. Maybe I might. I it's very hard for me to know though. And I just don't have that sense about it like I do my writing. Like, I'm very certain that I would be an enormous fan of my own writing as a reader. I don't know that I'd be uh, listen to every episode of the talk show if I were just a listener out there. I think so. I mean, I, I certainly don't think it would be something I never listened to, but I, ju I just don't know. I, I just don't. It doesn't come as natural to me. And so I, and I don't feel like I have a, a sense of why my listeners like the show as much as they do, you know, I mean, but it is still ultimately what I do once I, you know, me and my guests sit down and, and do what you and I are doing. And we start talking, I do try to just be as engaging as I think I would want to listen to, but I, I just don't have the taste to know. I'm interested in that dynamic that you have with your guests. And it's interesting that you say that you don't think you're great at podcasting or it's not the natural thing for you. When you are speaking to guests on your show, how does it feel to be a presenter? Naturally, it's different in this dynamic because I've put you on the spot to answer all of my narrative questions. But how do you feel being a presenter of an audio show to basically an invisible audience? Uncomfortable, always. Because, I mean, you know, the show is edited, but I don't do the editing. I've, I, cause I, I won't say I can't, but I, and I don't listen to my own show. Uh, I just can't bring myself to do it. When I was a kid, I remember, uh, watching late night talk shows and a lot, you know, it's like a recurring question over and over again would come up. I don't know, a couple times a month where some actor is promoting a new movie and it would come on and, and it would come about that some actor hasn't seen the movie and they're like, I, I can't watch myself on screen. And I used to think, ah, come on, that's not you're, you're that's fake humility. Of course, if you're a movie star, you love watching yourself on screen. Now I get it. I don't like watching myself in videos. Uh, I don't know why. There's something about listening to myself that just, I don't know. There, I, 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 
it makes me very uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable here even trying to describe it. So it just, it, none of it comes naturally to me. You know, it's my show. The guests are on. I, I want to be as gracious as I possibly can. I want them to be comfortable. I want them to, by being comfortable, I, I hope that they'll be more entertaining and, and engaging and make the insightful points that I hope that they're there to make about the topics of the day. But it all just seems to run by so fast to me, you know, as opposed to writing, which is where, you know, and, and famously, what I write about at Daring Fireball, well, sometimes I'll cover breaking news if something happens and I happen to see it flash by and I'll link to breaking news, you know, very shortly after it is there. But for the most part, people don't come to my website for breaking news. I can sit there and whether it's a short post or a long one, take as much time as I want and it's all just there on my own time. And then when I'm ready, okay, publish. Whereas, okay, we've started the Zoom call or the Skype or whatever it is, and we're talking. Even though the show's going to be edited in post, for the most part, it's like you start recording and you go through and you've got to do it live. And I, I'm not a fast thinker. I'm not a fast talker. Uh, even after all these years and hundreds of episodes, and I guess at this point, thousands of hours or close to it, you know, or over a thousand hours of podcasting, it all still, I, I'm sure that I'm better at it than I used to be, but I still feel that dialing in the right mix of listening to what the guest says and responding to that as a opposed to, okay, they're going, they're, they're on to something, but there's this point that I've jotted down that I wanted to make five minutes ago and I want to come back to it and I want to make my point. You know, the people who are the very, very best at it make it seem so seamless and natural and just the easiest thing in the world. And it's never, never feels that way to me. It always feels like it's just rushing past me and i know that there were points oh man there was a point i wanted to make 10 minutes ago but it's we've already moved on damn you know and whereas in my writing i can always go back and insert that in there it could literally be the next day and i think shit i wanted to make this point i can go back and edit yesterday's article to insert a paragraph where i wanted to make this extra point whereas in a podcast recording just a couple of minutes going by and sometimes it's too late and I'm trying, you know, I do try to get better. I don't, I, I'm not trying to poor mouth my abilities here, but I still feel like I need to continue working at it as a craft in a way that I don't with writing. It's very cool to hear that kind of self-reflection and how you think you've maybe changed and remained the same. As time's gone on and you've built this following, you've continued your writing, built an audience around your podcasting, what are the ways that maybe this career this independent writing and podcasting combination has led to other opportunities. What other things have you been able to do as a result of your work? Well, I guess the one that comes to mind is public speaking, you know, speaking at conferences, which everybody's been interrupted, you know, in this decade with COVID. But I sort of stepped away from that off the top of my head. I'm not quite sure the last time I spoke in front of an audience like that. And I actually am dealing with a couple of pending invitations for next year. That's one, but it's also along the lines of podcasting where I don't think I'm very good at it. 
I think the amount of time it consumes for me is not commensurate with what I get out of it. One thing I figured out when tech conferences were much more of a thing, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, people in a similar boat and similar stature, people who might also get invited to the same conferences I was at to give talks, would write a talk and then give it at three or four conferences for the next year. And I almost, I, I maybe like once or twice repeated a talk at two different conferences. And a couple of people said, well, that's crazy. You know what I mean? That's nuts. Like the whole point is you work on putting a talk together and then you can deliver it multiple times. It's, you know, it's not worth it, but it just seems neither way does it work out for me. Like on the one hand, it feels not right to keep delivering the same talk over and over again, like not interesting, but I can see how you get better at it. That's for, you know, and everybody said that like, Oh my God, the first time I gave this talk, it was terrible. And now I feel like it's halfway decent. And I was only giving the first version of a talk every time. <laughs> and I stress over it. You know, I, I'm not, I don't feel, I wouldn't say I have a phobia about speaking in front of an audience, but, you know, I, I feel like I'm smack dab in the middle of how, how stressed I feel about getting and standing up on stage in front of an audience of people. And it just consumes so much of my time that I, I think I'm happier not doing it. What else have I had the opportunity to do? I guess, I don't know if this is, answers your question, but I consider myself fortunate that I've gotten to meet and know so many of the sort of people who I wish that I would know, whether they're people who work at Apple or people who used to work at Apple or people in the independent developer community you know, who, who write the Mac apps that I'm most in Mac and iOS apps that I'm most interested in, you know, that I know I can exchange email with the people who write all of my favorite apps is something that I would have always wanted. And it, you know, it, it's, it feels like an incredible privilege that I know the people who, and, and also the people who write the other websites in, in the sphere that I'm in and that I consider almost all of them to be f not just acquaintances, but friends, you know, is just an enormous, enormous thrill and incredibly gratifying. That's a fantastic point. I'm actually really glad you brought it up because just then you've basically explained how perhaps you sit between all of these independent people who you admire and follow and have befriended, but then also you have these connections to those who run or work at Apple. Is that something that you think about much? How, how do you balance this sitting between this larger corporate entity and this large independent community? I think it suits me well that I have, and, and I'm sure there's some people out there who, you know, you can't be as strongly opinionated as I am without irritating some people, you know, I wouldn't say I have a large number of haters, but there's obviously some people who I rub the wrong way. And, and I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't think I could do what I do and it doesn't bother me. I, and yeah, kind of have to have some thick skin to get into this if you're going to let your opinions hang out. But I, I think that I have a humble streak that is very natural. That comes very natural to me probably instilled from my parents a little bit, a little bit of nature, a little bit of nurture. But I think I have never not underestimated how influential I am 
in the sphere that I write and including, you know, being read by people who at every level of Apple, you know, from the engineering trenches to the executive ranks, you know, that they read what I write and care about it. I know that they do. I mean, and, you know, and, and obviously one of the higher profile things I do every year is uh, for the last, I don't know, uh, close to 10 years, or maybe it's 10 years and counting, but at WWDC, having a live audience version of my podcast with executives from Apple on stage and getting to interview them in front of people. There's a part of me that doesn't really quite believe how influential I am in that regard. It really, I, I think I really do, in my mind, underestimate it. And I think the reason that works for me is that it keeps me closer to the mindset that I had right at the beginning when very few people knew my name and I was writing in obscurity and you could, I could sort of let fly with my honest opinion as opposed to being worried. Well, but I know, you know, here I am criticizing such and such aspect and I know so-and-so works on this at Apple. You know, you cannot be an honest critic and be worried about such things. Um, it's funny. I was just read uh, just yesterday as we record was re reading about a longtime restaurant critic at the New York Times, Mimi. Oh, I forget her last name now, but she was a restaurant critic at the New York Times in the seventies through the eighties. And a she was the first woman restaurant critic at the time, so that was groundbreaking in that regard. But the other thing she did, which seems crazy in hindsight, was she was the first restaurant critic who she'd, she'd make her reservations under a fake name. She would sometimes wear disguise, mild disguises like a wig or funny or a different pair of glasses or something when she'd go so that the restaurant wouldn't know that it's the food critic, the restaurant critic from the New York Times, because she realized she was, if they did, she was getting an entirely different class of service that wasn't representative of what the public would have. And that she just, you know, the only way to do her job was to just let it fly, you know, and if, you know, if she knows the chef and, and, you know, I'm sure in her, you know, the case of a New York restaurant critic, by the time she's established, she, she knows the people who are starting high end restaurants. And if she doesn't like the restaurant, you know, she's got to pan it in a review, even though she's going to have to, you know, she, she knows she's going to get a phone call from them <laughs> complaining about it, but you have to be like that. And it, I think it sort of comes naturally to me where I, I under, because I underestimate my influence, I'll, I'm freely honest with my feelings about the, the things I write about. And then I'm surprised when I get pushback on them from somebody involved, you know, uh, it's like, ah, huh, I, I wasn't even sure you'd read that, but okay, now we, you know, uh, let's have a back channel about it. But it keeps me from preemptively holding back with my honest opinion, well, both ways too, where I think it would be so easy to get neurotic about what I do and knowing that, you know, ob the obvious criticism against me, if, if you don't like my writing or if you're on the technological side of the fence, that's more like on the, you know, an Android uh, uh, enthusiast who thinks that the, the iOS platform is locked down in a way, you know, and that you're in Apple's walled garden and, you know, that's not for them and, and that I'm in the bag for Apple because I, you know, my reviews of the new iPhone are effusive, you know, and I'm finding all these good things to say about the, the latest iPhone or, or whatever. 
that I also I don't. It would be so easy to get caught up and think, well, if the number one criticism against me is that I'm too favorable towards Apple, and the, look at the last three iPhones I reviewed, I mostly had very very good things to say about them. It feels like I'm due to say something, find something to really criticize about this, just to make it look like I'm being even. I feel like that's the path to ruin in what I do because you're just overthinking it and you're not being honest. You know, if five or six consecutive iPhones get five or six consecutive effusive reviews, but they, I can look back at them in hindsight and say, yeah, I feel like that was an accurate description of the iPhone from four years ago. I don't, no, no regrets. I, I don't feel like I missed a glaring problem with it. That stands the test of time. That having a mindset where I'm not really that concerned because I don't see myself as that influential, I think helps me do that without overthinking it. And with that kind of pushback or feedback or the compliments that you receive that reveal that influence that you're talking about, you've very comprehensively described that path that you've had from those early groups on the internet through to starting your website and podcast through to today with this probably very frequent feedback that you receive. How do you think about the change in interaction with the audience and how do you hear back from people perhaps differently from when it was just through RSS subscriptions and website visits through to social media today. How does the technology and the way the medium is delivered influence that? Twitter was a huge boon to that. I mean, one thing, and again, it's, uh, well, podcasts have always been a little weird in this regard, where there's never really, to my knowledge, been a consistent way for the listeners of a podcast to have form a community. Whereas with blogs, it's the comment section on blogs. And I never had comments on Daring Fireball because it always, the trade-offs involved always seemed to me outweighed against having them at all from the beginning, even before spam, even before they got bigger. And yet at the time it, it was only I, I literally, I know it seems funny now because the comments have gotten so toxic overall and the, and the, the amount of moderation that goes into it. Most people, I, you know, if somebody were to start a new blog, it would be surprising if they had comments on their every post. I mean, I know it, there's still are blogs that do it, but it's, it's now, less common. Whereas when I got started, it was very unusual that I didn't have comments at all, especially since if you're using, you know, some kind of CMS software that could have them like I was, I just didn't enable it. Podcasts never had that really. I mean, I know some, some podcasts will have like a Reddit community or something like that, but Twitter was a huge boon to me in that regard. And Twitter coming around, you know, as my website was still getting more popular it became a sort of, hey, this is almost as good as, or honestly, better than having comments per post. Whereas instead of me being in control of them, here's this neutral ground. And it's one place where people could go and, you know, at Gruber or at my Daring Fireball Twitter account and ch chime in with their comments in a public way, as opposed to sending me email. I mean, the other, you know, the two main ways I've communicated with readers for 20 years are email and Twitter. Doing it in public is more fun, maybe, and it's more useful because then if somebody has a point to add or criticism, an astute criticism to make or a common question, you know, uh, one person asking me 
a question on Twitter about, well, what about blank with regard to this article I just posted? That one person who asks me on Twitter might be asking the same question that 500 readers were also thinking, but just didn't bother to tweet. And then I could answer on Twitter and somebody who's following along at home could be like, ah, that, you know, it's funny. I was going to ask, I was thinking about asking Gruber the same thing. Um, and I, you know, it's it sort of worked out better than I think comments on my website ever, ever could have, you know, but then there's always email and, and, you know, I certainly understand the desire for many people not to, um, just not to post publicly on something like Twitter, not Twitter t- of today, but even the Twitter of the quote unquote good old days, 2008, 2009, just wanting to stay under the radar publicly. You know, I certainly welcome people to send me email. There was sort of a heyday there, though, where Twitter was just, it was just so obviously the place for a public interaction with my readers. And it still is to some degree. I mean, I'm not, uh, but I use Twitter so much less in the last year since Elon Musk's takeover. And and now that whole sphere is so fragmented with Mastodon and Blue Sky to some degree and now Threads. And it's like, you know, I, I think it's overall healthier, I guess. Uh, and in a long-term sense to have, you know, a bunch of sites that have the same idea. And it certainly wasn't healthy anymore for Twitter to play an outsized central role in that sort of discourse with the direction that it's gone recently. But for me personally, the fragmentation means it's it doesn't seem anywhere near as neat as it used to be like and where i mean by neat is it felt like for years i'd say a, a full decade maybe maybe even a decade plus you know circa 2009 2010 when twitter really got bigger the iphone was out and twitter is so the 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 short form nature of twitter is so suitable to the phone and, and there's just no way to separate the rise of the two things and it's not just twitter in particular but just social media in general the fact that social media posts are nuggets that typically whether they're videos like tiktok or whatever or text posts or personal family updates on facebook or whatever they fit on a phone screen and you just sort of scroll through in such a natural way i'd say there was a decade though where it it felt neat to me where i felt like i was 100% certain that I could, hey, once a day, check in with my mentions on Twitter, scroll down from the newest to, okay, I remember reading this one yesterday. So now I know I'm caught up and I've seen every single thing somebody has at Grubered me on Twitter and replied to all the ones that I've, you know, either want to make a joke or I just want to say thanks or they have an honest, you know, an interesting question and that's it. I'm caught up. And the completionist in me can feel like, you know, time, you know, I can put this away and come back tomorrow. Whereas now it's so fragmented. I just, there's just no way to get that sense of like, I sort of have to live every day now thinking like, ah, there's probably something on Mastodon that I've, somebody's asked me a good question and I've missed and I'm never going to get to it. And, and I feel a little, there's like a mild OCD streak in me that is irritated by that. What would you like to see? 
more centralization or no, choosing I, of a preference or what would be your ideal future? I, I, I don't know what I, I think this is heading. I think it's more ideal overall to have this sort of uh, to have it the way it is right now and have threads continue to grow and Mastodon to continue to grow because it's the most open and most independent. And the fact that there's no longer one central place, it works out worse for me, but I think it's better for the world. And, and, you know, the world changes. You just have to accept it. It's, there's no way to stay relevant without going with the flow of the way that the world's changing. Of course it's changing, but it's just, here's one case where I feel like for my particular needs of having a loose, unofficial community around my work, my writing, my podcast, it's worse that Twitter no longer is the place, the one place where everybody would know to go to do it. But I think it's better for the world. So I'd, I, I don't have a wish for any one of these things to either Twitter to come back to its centrality or threads to become that big and central. I, I don't think that would be good for the world. So, you know, it is what it is. It, it is having three apps to check is way more than three times the work. And I don't know why that is. Maybe that's a good topic for an article. <laughs> the way you've characterized that, I really like that, that kind of difficulty of all these fragmenting things to keep track of, but trying to see where all this information is being funneled and questions asked of what you're writing, what you're recording. It's an interesting kind of connection or parallel to draw to the world of RSS and blogs operating in all these different places, but being available through readers or directories or other tools. How do you think about that environment of RSS and the web and how it's fueled or helped your career? It's one of the, or, or perhaps the most interesting thing about podcasts is it's the one area where the open, completely decentralized stuff has won and continues to win. I think Spotify is clearly the biggest threat to that in terms of both the, the nature of their platform and the strategies that they seem to be taking by signing big, big, super popular podcasters like Joe Rogan and uh, Bill Simmons in the sports world and his whole ringer network of pop culture stuff. But I think it's super telling especially with the ringer uh the bill simmons network how much of their stuff is still just open in a regular rss feed that you don't have to use the spotify app to access they have some exclusive stuff but all the stuff that i listen to from the ringer is still just there in open rss where you can just pick whatever podcast player you want and listen to it i think it goes under remarked upon that podcasting is the one way where that's it, it, that was sort of the vision for the whole way the whole internet would work and it hasn't really writing with blogs is still a thing but it's nowhere near as popular as it was 20 years ago and that's bananas to me it really is i i, I don't understand it i find it crushingly disappointing i really do that having a personal blog and 
putting time into it. And even if you don't, you know, and, and so much of blogging, the nature of it, and people still do it, but people who are full-time, especially in the stuff I read, people who are full-time software engineers working, you know, either at a big company or working on a, independent apps or something like that. And then just blogging about what they're doing or something else, something that's unrelated to their programming work, but just having a blog where they write about stuff with no aspirations to do it for money or income or have ads or, or members or anything like that. But just, you know, uh, writing a thousand words, 2000 words a month across a couple of posts. So many good thinkers are good writers, even if they're not writing as their main vocation. And yet it's so much less popular because so much of what we write has gotten, uh, of what we read has gotten sucked into these large corporate sites. And the web has just gotten so much worse with the ads. I mean, that's the whole reason the best news on the reading front is the resurgence in email newsletters. And Substack, of course, is the commercial company that is uh, making that happen. But there's all sorts of open source platforms that do what Substack does, Ghost being, I think, the best and most well-known one. And that people who do aspire to either do it as their main job or as a side job can do it for money. And instead of selling ads, you know, sell five or $10 monthly memberships to get it. But the reason that these newsletters are so popular and resurgent, it's so obvious. And yet it goes under remarked upon. It's because it's the one place people know where they can go read something and not have freaking ads pop up every two paragraphs or cover the text. When you get an email newsletter and you're like, oh, there's an email newsletter from one of my favorites who I subscribe to, and you start reading it, and then you just read and you hit the space bar to scroll down, or you sit there on your phone with your thumb and you scroll, and then you get to the bottom, and then you're done. And there was no interruptions, and it was a pleasant reading experience. Well, you don't get that on the web anymore, or you get it so much less often. Whereas podcasts is where you do, right? Podcasts are as good as they ever were. They haven't gone downhill, and you still have this choice in clients, and there's a thriving market for independent podcast players like Marco Arment's uh, Overcast and Castro. It, it, podcasts are working out the way the internet was supposed to work out, which is openness and clients that can communicate over published APIs to a thing. But our, you know, and I, RSS for reading uh, is still a thing. And I, you know, every couple, it's, it's frustrating. I'm very good friends with Brent Simmons, who's the, now it's an open source project, Net Newswire. It's my favorite RSS reader for both the Mac and iPhone. I love it. I'm so glad it's a rare case of something that was a big, big hit product around 2000, you know, the early days of Daring Fireball, really. And then he came back to it and resurrected it and got the brand back from a company he had sold it to and it passed it around. And now it's an open source project. And it's so frustrating for these developers. It's popular and thousands and thousands of people use, there's other, you know, Reader, R-E-E-D-E-R, super popular RSS reader for iOS. I'm sure lots of people listening to this have heard of. There's lots of popular RSS readers. It's not as popular as it used to be though. And then, so what's frustrating is every year or two, there's a, a, a rash of articles like, hey, RSS was dead, but now it's back. And it's like, well, it was never dead. <laughs> and it's not really, you know, whatever you're thinking made it come back. It's It never went away, but it could be grist for a dissertation. Like why podcasting is so relevant in 
the true mainstream sense where millions, hundreds of millions of people listen to podcasts and the number of people who get their reading material through a reading RSS reader is so much smaller. I mean, orders of magnitude, you know, maybe a hundred times smaller, not just 10 times smaller. I, I don't know. It's still big and, and, but it, it it does seem permanently nerdy for, for reasons that escape me, but it's a thrill to me. And, and it, uh, I would have it no other way that I, you know, everything I publish at my website is in the RSS feed. And if you don't want to read it on my website, which I hope is a pleasant way to read it, but you want to read it your way in your RSS reader, I'm happy, happy to do it. To me, it, it's defining to, I mean, it comes back to Dave Weiner who, who invented RSS and certainly, you know, it deserves the lion's share of the credit for establishing it as the standard that it is, that all of this came out of his work, including podcasting and using the same format, this technical, you know, XML format RSS to distribute podcasts in addition to reading the written word. It really is it's just so aligned with the original vision for the way the entire internet would work. And I'm, you know, happy to be a part of it. And, you know, and I feel that by embracing it, it's, it's, it's not like, Oh, well, the, all these reasons that the big companies don't embrace it and don't put the full content of their articles in RSS reads, uh, that I'm being, uh, like an idealist by doing it. No, I think that for me in my career, by embracing it, it's fueled my success. Not like, oh, I'd be doing even better if I kept stuff behind a paywall or something like that. Talking about paywalls, for example, or paying for access to RSS content, you also have other shows or other content that you work on like dithering. Hmm. What was that like to negotiate something being available on RSS, but paying to have access to it, which is different from what you've done before with your main show. Yeah, that's, a, it's funny. I don't know why <laughs> I didn't expect you to bring it up. It's dithering still feels new to me. We start Ben Thompson and I do it together. He writes Stratechery, which is a paid weekly newsletter with a, you know, a, a free article every week. Um, it was more his idea than mine, but I don't, uh, as I recall, I don't think it, it, I didn't need to be talked into it too much. It seemed like a good idea. There's a Bob Dylan line. He, I'm, uh, it's, it's criminal that I can never exactly remember quotes, but he, he not busy being born is busy dying. That you kind of have to keep moving forward. And I'm, you know, I've got a great thing going with Daring Fireball and the talk show. And I'm not looking to revolutionize how I spend my days, you know, for the second half of my career, I'd like to think hopefully that I can go from here to whatever the end of the line is decades from now doing what I do. But it feels like it always felt like I, there should be new things every couple of years. It, it just feels like that's the right way to not be busy dying. And clearly in the last few years, the paywall subscription sort of thing, I talked about it with newsletters, um, I, I I probably am leaving money on the table by not having some written thing that is paywall only. And again, never say never. I wouldn't say I never do it, but I like the fact that everything I write is just there for anybody to link to. And you're not going to even have to click through 
and hit one button to close a thing that says, hey, by the way, do you want to subscribe? You know, the worst is when you hit a paywall that doesn't even let you click a button to actually just read the article where it's like, nope, you either pay or you don't read. But I, I'm so annoyed by just having to click a button or two just to get to the damn thing to read. I'm, I, it makes me very happy that everything I write, people can just open it and start scrolling and reading. But it's clear that my idea 2006 or so when I had a membership system, and that was one of the things I tried back then was having the RSS feed for non-members would only have excerpts of the articles. And then you'd have to click through from your RS reader to go to my website where I had little banner ads, you know, that that was where the money came from. So if the ads were on the website and you were a free reader in RSS, you'd have to come to my website to read the article, but that it felt conv- And there, you know, there were other reasons I switched to just putting a spot, a once a week sponsorship in the RSS feed so that I could have, everybody just on the same thing and have all the content in the RSS feed. But clearly there's something going on with memberships and readers wanting to support it. Uh, the, the independent writers, podcasters, YouTubers too, right? Even YouTube people have Patreons and, and stuff like that and, and membership systems. And it's, it's sort of a, I think a very natural reaction to just the incredible consolidation in the very, very, very largest tech companies, the Apple, Facebook, Google, you know, that so much of what Amazon, did I mention Amazon, but so much has been steered towards those companies that I think just typical people who maybe 10 years ago would have been like, ah, I'm not paying for something on the internet now feel like, yeah, I pay for so much stuff on the internet. The least I can do is offer five bucks a month to my very favorite writers or podcasters or something like that. How can I get my piece of that pie? <laughs> right? I guess. <laughs> I mean, that's that's not really what I was thinking. But I, I had been thinking before Ben proposed it, you know, is there something I could do at Daring Fireball to rejuvenate, bring back a membership thing? What would it be? You know, I don't want to paywall my articles. And then it's like, well, then I could write like an extra article every week. And then that would be the one that, and then I'm like, no, because then if it's good, I'd want it to be out there for everybody, right? <laughs> you know, that's the hell of it, right? It's like, you could say, well, I'll have one article a week that's paywalled only. And then I would lose either way. Because if I, if I got to the end of that one article that was for paying members only, and I felt like it was really good, it would really frustrate me that it wasn't out there for everybody. But if I didn't feel like it was really good, I would feel terrible because I would feel like, well, these are the people who are paying me, you know, uh, I don't know, 50 bucks a year or 100 bucks a year or whatever it is. And I I feel like this one's a clunker. Mm. So dithering a totally new podcast, short form, just two of us and making it paywall only felt win-win to me because it felt like I wasn't taking anything that I'd previously made free of charge for everybody, my main podcast, the talk show, or my website, and it's not writing. And I do feel, I just feel a little differently, and I'm less precious about my podcasting efforts than my writing. 
and having it only be paywall. So there's no confusion. There's no gating. Well, this episode will be free and this one's not or whatever. It's like, no, you pay us five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year. And you get two episodes a week of our, you know, 15 minutes on the button every episode. And if, you know, if you don't like it, you're only out five bucks for the month and just cancel your subscription. You know, it's worked out very well. And, you know, for me personally, you know, it, it the, the short nature of dithering <laughs> certainly helps uh, in terms of just fitting it into my schedule because it doesn't. Here we are now. We started it in early April 2020 during the pandemic. And it, that sort of accelerated our, you know, we were sitting around with nothing nothing to do. Why don't we start the show that we've been talking about? Let's do it. Let's just start recording it and, and get it out there. We were talking about it before COVID, but then COVID really accelerated. It's like, yeah, this is like a perfect little pandemic project. Uh, here we are over three years later, and I don't feel the least bit resentful of it, which was my fear going in. My fear going in was that uh, after the novelty wore off, I would start to feel like, oh, God, it's Monday. I got to uh, record dithering with Ben again. And, I'm, you know, and the resentment would come from like, interrupting my work you know I'm, that's one thing i'm very precious about is uh, i really am i'm a the princess in the pea under the the mattress where it's like it's very hard for me to get going when i'm writing and then once i am going i really I don't want to be interrupted dithering for some reason doesn't do that for me it it just feels like yeah this is fun i love having so an outlet for little 15 minute conversations about something. And I like too that because it's 15 minutes and extremely regular on a regular schedule two a week, it is really the polar opposite of the talk show, which is, you know, more or less the, the schedule is three times a month and episodes range from, I don't know, one and a half hours to two and a half hours, sometimes even longer instead of being irregularly scattered across the month three times and sprawling in length, very regular, very short, to the point, 15 minutes in and out. And so it totally feels additive to what I'm putting out in the world as opposed to carving out something I was doing before and doing it in a different way. It feels additive, which is very, very gratifying, and it just sort of feels easily sustainable, right? Like, I, I have as much enthusiasm for doing dithering as I, I, right now as I did when we started uh, three years ago. That's a fantastic explanation. And over the course of all the stories and the experiences that you've shared, you mentioned the passion of people who write blogs and make podcasts, whether or not it's for money. You spoke about your own experiences, things that were unexpected, what you found uncomfortable or surprising. I suppose what I want to ask you as we kind of move towards the end is when you think about the old, the new, all the things that you've done in your career, whether it's big or small, what's the thing that you've done that you're perhaps most proud of? Hmm. I I guess the body of writing, you know, and it's the weird way I do, you know, I did graduate with a degree in computer science. I do know how to program. I'm what in in the alternate multiverse fork of the world universe where I'm a full time programmer, I'm I'm not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There might not be there might not be a universe where I've reached 
the age of 50 and I'm still programming because I don't, I think, I think my, especially how slow I am at programming, I, I think was not conducive to being, <laughs> to being a professional at it. But I did, I wrote a, I wrote a script. I exported everything I've, you know, from my, my CMS at Daring Fireball, exported everything and then wrote a script to count how many words I'd written. I actually forget the number now, but I know, was it a million or two million? I don't know, but it was a very big number. And it, the script was smart enough to not count the words that I block quoted when I reference other articles. You know, when I say Martin Feld at such and such publication wrote this and quote two paragraphs, uh, not counting those words, the number of words that I've written and put out there was enormous. And, you know, and you can divide by like the average length of a book. And it's, you know, it's the equivalent of many, many books of writing, you know, which would be daunting at the outset, right? If you'd say, you know, you start down with a fresh blog without a post and get to the point where you could say you've written a million original words, you would say, oh my God, forget it. I'm not even going to start, you know, it, but it really is. It's, 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 that's one of the things about getting older too, is you realize how many old trite sayings are so true. You know, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a step, you know, just start walking, you know, take a step, keep going, keep your, keep your feet moving, just keep moving. I, that's how I would answer that question. You know, uh, we didn't talk about it, but I, I invented Markdown, <laughs> which, which is, I, at this point, because it, some people are like, wait, you invented Markdown? I'm like, yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. And, and probably, you know, if I, you know, proverbially, but tragically, you know, come out of this podcast with you and step outside and get hit by a bus and die. I hope not. I hope not too. I trust me. I hope not more than you, but, uh, <laughs> well, no, probably you too. Cause then what are you going to do with this episode? Right? Oh man, you'd be really up a, you know, you've got this great <laughs> episode, but here I am dead and I'm making jokes about it. Uh, yeah, you'd be in a real tough position. You'd have to think about whether to cut this segment out. But um, only the highest ethical standards for this show, John. Right, but the truth is, it is it, not to get too philosophical about it. But it, because what I write about is about technology, and technology is moving very quickly, my archives of writing isn't as relevant as you know. Well, fiction's the best comparison because you know the only other thing I could have imagined writing about would be politics and national affairs type stuff, and that dates poorly too. You know, I mean, and you know, people sometimes will go back and read ten, fifteen year old articles of mine, and some of them stand up very well, uh, or, or in terms of having relevance. Some of them maybe the subject matter doesn't, but somebody will read it and just say, like, you know, I don't know how I got there, but I read this old article about brushed metal user interface and. I just loved it. So, uh, you know, but it it is what it is. You know, I, I can't do what I do and worry about the fact that what I write in 2023 isn't really going to be all that interesting, even in 2024, but especially 10 years from now. But if I did get hit by a bus very quickly, I would suppose that my influence, my lasting influence on the world would be more marked down than my writing because that continues to have legs. But in terms of what I'm personally prouder of, I, I th I'd have to say my writing. That's fantastic. And I'm glad you brought up Markdown because that's a huge element of what you've done. Now, you kind of did that already in mentioning Markdown, but is there anything that we haven't discussed or that I haven't asked you that you'd like to mention before we wrap up? 
No, not really. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm not, I, I hope I've made it, you feel like I'm as comfortable as I can be, but I'm not comfortable talking about myself and my work. And I don't know what to, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> That's totally fine. Well, look, John, this has been an absolute pleasure. I want to thank you for your very generous time in contributing to the Really Specific Stories project. Well, thank you. You've you've been delightful, and your questions are very interesting, uh, or at least they interested me, so I hope they interest everybody who <laughs> listened to me uh, answer them as best I could. <laughs>